0: Carry on. I
1: need a drink and a conversation.
0: You know it's up to me. Who I will be if he's gone?
1: Oh, oh, I. I better learn how to face. She's gone, and she's gone. Oh, oh, I. I paid the devil to replace her. She's gone. Welcome to the Shigan podcast. This is your host, <laughs> Jeff Fry. I have a very special guest today, retired Major League umpire Ted Barrett. Must be the most beloved umpire out there and most of the time people think that umpires are disliked, but I got to tell you when I announced that Ted was going to be on the show, the reception I've got from former players and coaches and people all over the place has been. They love Ted Barrett. He's a pro's pro, and so I'm so excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to the Shigon Podcast, Ted Barrett.
0: Jeff, I'm honored to be on. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm flattered that uh, people would say nice things about me. I'm not used to that uh, throughout my career, so that's really cool to hear. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you're used to getting yelled at. I mean, as an umpire or an official in any sport, it's half the time. Half the crowd disagrees with your calls, and and <laughs> the reception I got was incredible from guys like Todd Pratt and Gary Bennett and John McLaren, Al Clark, longtime umpire, retired, said to send you his best. So it it, it says a lot about you, Ted, and the kind of person you are. And uh, I'm just you know I feel honored to have you on the show today, and coming off the heels of your retirement from a very successful career as a major league umpire there's so many things i want to ask you about some of the new things happening in the game that uh um, i don't know if that had anything to do with your retirement i'm guessing it might have but uh the idea that uh uh we're getting close to where we have robot umpires instead of human being umpires is incredible to even think of for me
0: yeah absolutely and uh who'd have thought you know I think the last time you and I shared a field was probably 2001 maybe. Um, who'd have thought we'd be here just uh, 20 years later and talking about robot umpires. I never thought we would get to that point but, but here we are and um, yeah uh, you mentioned Al Clark. What a great umpire. One of the guys I learned from coming up and I always uh, like talking to the older guys and they're amazed at how much the game's changed and how much the job's changed and Probably 20 years from now, I'll be uh, sitting back and lamenting over the state of the game. But um, lots of changes, there's no doubt. And for me, retiring hasn't even sunk in yet because uh, I'm doing what I usually do in February. And now uh, probably when uh, March hits and the season starts, that's when it will really sink in.
1: Yeah, it's tough, man. I mean, you you started, I guess, your first year – um it was 1994 and you kind of were back and forth from a to the big leagues for five or six years until um I guess 2000 is when somewhere around then is when you became a full-time major league umpire so you know how many years officially 27 28 years as a major league umpire
0: yeah um 34 if you count my minor league time uh 1989 is when I headed off to Joe Brinkman umpire school and that seems like yesterday but yeah 94 is when I made my debut and um then my last game was a uh, National League Championship Series between the Padres and Phillies and um yeah when that was over got on a plane and headed home and so this will be the first time spring training uh I'll be a uh, just watching it instead of
1: getting out there and knocking the rust off and getting ready for the season. Well, do you have any ideas about what, what your new hobbies are going to be? Are you going to start playing some golf or fishing or, or or are you going to get back into boxing a little bit? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm,
0: I had about a hundred different things. I always said I would do when I retired and I've tried to do them all in the last couple months and I'm uh, driving my wife crazy and making myself tired, but no, I ride motorcycles. I've got a, group of guys that I ride with, and and, uh, we take off. We just went to California this weekend, and, you know, Arizona, we got beautiful weather, and I'm looking forward to uh, April and May when I'm usually out on the road uh, getting out and riding some of the U.S., maybe get up to Sturgis. Uh, Boxing, I've been um, doing some refereeing. I finally figured out I was too old to compete. Uh, Actually, I have been for a long time, and just my mind didn't know that. Uh, but I've been going to the boxing gym, doing some training on, on refereeing, you know, uh, Jeff, like ballplayers, um, you guys always thought you knew everything about umpiring, <laughs> but for me as a guy that boxed, I thought refereeing, how hard it could it be, right? You got to count to 10, watch in case, uh, somebody low blows. It's, it's just really not that tough, but there's so much more to it than I thought. So it's been really humbling going back to the gym and I referee some sparring sessions and there's some seasoned refs teaching me, um, yelling at me. And, you know, usually I'm the one doing instructing to minor league guys or or aspiring professional umpires. And now I'm the one getting getting instructed. Um, and it's been really cool. I like learning new things and new hobbies and new skills. So we'll see where that goes. I might still have some uh, some time in the ring to uh, get out and referee some fights. Um but that that's take. I'll have no problem filling up my time. That will not be an
1: issue. <laughs> I remember. You know, I'm a huge boxing fan. I mean, I came up watching, you know, Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray and Roberto Duran and then Larry Holmes and then Evander Holyfield and then Mike Tyson. And you know, what I remember from those fights is the referees always seemed really, really small guys. You know, these guys were having a they're having a hard time pushing. Uh, Larry Holmes away from Muhammad Ali, but I don't think you're going to have that problem, Ted. You're going to be bigger than most of these guys. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, my problem will
0: be like separating the little guys as, as we're doing uh, sparring with some featherweights, and you know, I reach out and put put my hand on the guy's chest and push back. One guy, he kind of went flying back into the corner, and they said, "Hey, take it easy." Uh, but yeah, even even the great Mills Lane, uh, who we just lost recently, was a one of, probably one of the best referees of all time, but. He would have trouble getting in there and separating, you know, the Riddick bows and Razor Reddicks and guys like that. So that is one advantage I have over uh, maybe a smaller guy.
1: And and you were you never boxed professionally, but you did box as an amateur. I think I said saw where you had like thirty six fights as an amateur, and then uh, I guess your parents weren't real fond of your career choice and encouraged you to maybe become an umpire instead. Um, and there's some stories out there that you know you sparred with some of the greatest fighters ever can you elaborate a little bit on that stuff is that stuff true
0: yeah yeah absolutely I had a pretty good amateur career um and even after at one point I was going to move to I did move to Las Vegas to try to make a career out of it and I got some good work as sparring partners uh first seven world champs I'm proud of that Uh, the first one was Greg Page um Former champion. Uh, and he really showed me the ropes of the etiquette of sparring. And um, he told me, you can make a decent living doing this. And then, even, yeah, my dad did not like me fighting. Um, he's a big supporter of mine. So he kind of tempted me. Of, uh, he said, I'll pay for you if you want to go to umpire school. And I wanted to, you know, get away from uh, Las Vegas. I was tired of getting beat up. <laughs> but uh, I said, I'll go away for five weeks and come back. I thought it'd be like a vacation in Florida. And I ended up getting a job. But even then, uh, you know you know what we made, Jeff, in the minor leagues. So um, we, we uh, I was able to get some work as a sparring partner even in the offseason while I was in the minor leagues. I'd go to Reno. I was living in California. I'd get some work there in the Bay Area. I'd, I'd head out to Reno or Lake Tahoe. And then when I moved down to Arizona – after being in the minor leagues a few years, I, I was able to get steady work down here. And if you're a heavyweight, you can get steady work sparring um, because there's always looking for guys to get in there. And then you get some of those big guys that I sparred with, and uh, it's hard to keep good sparring partners. So I was able to come back from the season and plug right in and then um, leave for the season. And even even sometimes I'd come back during the season if I was on vacation and they found out I was home. They were come on, I need a couple rounds. I got to fight. So, and, and, and it paid well. Um, it probably took a lot of years off my life, but uh, it was fun. Some of the best people I've met are, are in the sport of boxing wow, and boxers in particular. Cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I read something about you that uh, you graduated from Cal State Hayward. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I, I played football when they had football. Um,
0: and they dropped that a few years after I left and then, um, Cal State Hayward became Cal State East Bay. So they, uh, they keep changing the name and, and, uh, yeah, we we're, uh, all the alumni, all the guys I played with, we're still pretty upset that they, that they dropped football and they changed the name, but, um, stay in touch with a lot of the guys I played with. We, we try to get together when we can. And, um, that's another thing and now that I'm retired, I'm looking forward to maybe Hitting a couple more reunions and um, it's funny how we all uh, we're much better football players now um, than we were then, at least in our minds. So yeah, older sure. you get, the better you were. Yeah, the older you
1: get, the better you were. Well that that's great. I I don't know if you know this about me, but I spent the first sixteen years of my life in the Bay Area and most of that time was in Hayward.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. I, I knew you were born out. There. I remember you saying you were you were born out in the uh, East Bay, um,
1: but I didn't realize. Yeah, you... well, born in Oakland, born in Oakland, but never lived in Oakland. I lived in Hayward, in San Leandro. Um, we actually went to Hayward High for a year and a half, and Cal State was—is it not right up the hill?
0: Right up the hill, yeah. And you know, um, used to go to Hayward High. Man, it's such great athletes came out of there, of course, uh, like Jack Del Rio, right? And um, yep. Donnie Wakamatsu, who we used to see in the dugout all the time. Another guy that was a great baseball man, that, like we were talking about earlier. Um, been with a bunch of teams. And, yeah, I mean, the
1: talent that came out of Hayward uh, is pretty amazing.
0: Um,
1: yeah, and I, I mean, I actually played uh, my, I think, sophomore junior year in high school um I was on the we, the first season we ever had a fall baseball at Hayward and Jack Del Rio was on my team.
0: Yeah, people don't realize. Of course, he was, you know, the great, great football player at USC and in the NFL, but he was a great basketball player and I think he was a catcher, wasn't he, with you guys? Um
1: Yeah, and he could hit. And he and I mean he was a great basketball player. He was like 25 points a game, you know, six four, two twenty-five, however big he was. I mean, he was a stud, three sports stud and uh, walk I played with walk Matsu in winter ball uh, and he was a few years older than me had never met him but just knew that he was from Hayward and made the major leagues and we I was fortunate enough to get to play with him in Venezuela what a great guy he is man they don't make him much better than that guy I can tell you that
0: yeah just a great baseball man and uh, I mean all the all the talent that came out of uh, the Bay Area and continues to come out of there it's um uh, it, it is cool. And, and at Hayward, we actually, um, we had our, I think uh, Randy Reddy was the only uh, guy to make it to the big leagues out of there. But now there's a, a pitcher with the Dodgers uh, left-hander, um, Alex Vasia, uh, I think. And, uh, but yeah, just up the hill from, from where you were and a uh, beautiful campus up there and, like I said, we took a lot of pride that we were kind of, you know, we were playing the Santa Claras and the UC Davis and San Luis Obispo, and we felt like we were kind of the the bad boys of the conference. Um, got a lot of bounce back players and junior college players like myself, and kind of worked up a team, and and we did really well. So, um,
1: yeah, I, I, I look back at my Hayward days uh, very fondly. Yeah, well, that's so. My uncle Peter, who. Basically taught me how to play sports. Lived up <clears throat> about halfway up to Cal State. There's some apartments on the left called Tanglewood Apartments. Yep. And he lived there for about 20 years. Wow. So, <laughs> I made that drive up the hill more times than than I can even count. But yeah, uh, Carlos yeah, B Boulevard,
0: I think was the name of it, wasn't it?
1: Carlos B. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so when funny. I was when I was yeah. boxing, that,
0: with you, that, yeah. When when I was boxing, actually, uh, we ran up that hill a couple times and, um, you know, the heavyweights, we were kind of
1: yeah, far behind
0: wheezing, but yeah, the, the lightweight guy, there was a, there was a kid named, uh, Zanino, I think was his name. We did a, a great fighter came out of Hayward. Um, and, um, I might be misremembering the name, man, you're it back all these memories, but he would sprint up that hill. And I was just absolutely amazed. Um, because, you know, th- your listeners don't realize this, but how steep that thing was and and steep oh, and far. And, uh, you know, I would I'd be back there uh, hacking up my breakfast. But this guy is just sprinting up there like it's uh, but and then when he got in the ring, um, he could go 10, 15 rounds, no problem. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think that
1: was where he got his conditioning he was running up and down Carlos B Boulevard. Oh, man, that's so funny because. When I was 27 years old, I loaded up my mom um, living in a small town in Oklahoma and moved her to California. And My uncle had set up a meeting with my mom and my real father, who I'd never met, and I walked into my uncle's apartment on Carlos B when I was 27 years old, brought my mother in, and, and met my father for the first time in my uncle's apartment, Tanglewood Apartments on Carlos B. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I got a lot of memories, a lot of memories from that area. That is really cool that we have that connection.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, that is.
1: But I want to, I want to uh, transition a little bit to, uh, you know, what you did for a career, man, as as a major league umpire, and some of the guys that you mentioned, um, the Al Clark's of the world. The, I'm sure uh, Ken Kaiser was. Uh, you know, a larger than life character. Oh, yeah. Um, when you first came in the game, and, you know, we were afraid of Ken Kaiser. We didn't even <laughs> want to look at him because we thought he might get mad at us. Yeah. Uh, but, but Ted Hendry, yeah. um, Tim Cheetah, yeah. Richie Garcia, um, Chuck Mayweather, man, I, I had so many great relationships with umpires over the years just because I knew you guys had a job to do and I respected you. I knew it was a difficult job. And I just, I mean, I wanted to be a good guy and and be friendly to umpires, Uh, not because I expected them to give me calls, just because we're all in this together, man. We're working together. And I feel like once you guys went on strike, it seems like it strained that relationship because it seems like the Players Association didn't support you guys. And I, I... that bothers me to this day because um, I think that created a rift between the players. And I don't know if you know this, Ted, but a lot of the decisions made by the player association weren't unanimously agreed upon by the players.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate that. You know, and those are the guys that you mentioned every one of them, Uh, Richie and Chuck and Tim. And I mean, these guys were my mentors and um, they always taught me when it comes to dealing with players, uh, treat players how they treat you. And, um, you know, with, with you, you had so much respect among the, the group because, uh, you know, you weren't, uh, you weren't a complainer. Like you said, we were, we were in it together. You know, it's, um, remember the cartoon when we were little, where the, 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 sheepdog and the wolf, they're punching the clock and then they go out and chase each other. Um, and then they punch the clock and leave the, Hey, good night. See you. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's kind of the way it was. we get on the field, you get in the heat and the emotion of, of uh, trying to do well and win the game. Because I know that back then, the most important thing was winning the game. Not, not what you were doing individually, but as a team. And so there was emotions that would bubble over and arguments at times, but then it was like, Hey, uh, the next day, Hey, sorry about that. You know, lost control. No, you're okay. We'll start over. It's a new day. You know, you think about Lou coming out, you throwing bases around and, yelling and screaming. And the next day, it's like nothing ever happened. He's your best friend again. And that's the way it was back then. And that's kind of that's changed. We've lost that. But um, also, you know, I was able to serve as vice president of the Empire's Union in, in the last uh, five years and was in negotiations with them for our contract. So, you know, I know how union stuff works. And like you said, things aren't unanimous, but you go out and you and you you do what thinks you think is best for the group and then the way negotiations are. And, um, you know, it's a business. That's the side that kind of disillusioned me always because, you know, I'm I'm playing, we're playing a kid's game and I'm getting to stand out there and umpire a a game. And, um, but at the end of the day, it is a business too. So negotiations, things like that happen, players, strikes and stoppages, but, uh, no, don't, don't be hard on yourself for that because, um, like I said, everybody everybody respected you, and and um, you know it's funny with one of the differences today. Uh, when a young guy comes up, if we had problems with him, we would go to a veteran guy and say, "Hey, uh, can you talk to this kid?" You know, you think about a Tory Hunter. Um, he came out on the field and he's got Mike Trout with him and Mike Trout's this 21 year old kid that obviously was very talented, but he said, Hey, this is Ted. Uh, this is Tim, you know, know their names. Um, and so Tory was training Mike Trout. How do you, how you act with umpires. And now Mike Trout is, uh, one of the best guys that we deal we deal with because he learned from Torrey and, you know, you think about Ken Griffey Jr. would bring a young player into the locker room or, um, you know, a lot of guy, veteran guys that you played with. It was if there was a problem with a guy, you could go to a veteran guy, and it would get straightened out. And now it's you know the the veteran they don't have the relationship with each other, so it's hard. I've gone to veteran guys and said, "Hey, can you talk to this young kid?" And they're like, "He's not going to listen to me." <laughs> so yeah. uh, it, it's changed our dynamic that way too. And um, you know, it's a generational thing. The younger people don't communicate face to face as well uh, where, you know, you would be playing second base and uh, if I was umpiring second base and we're talking and um, having a conversation about whatever uh, there's that personal connection and there's, there's really not that much anymore. Um, That's sad. You-
1: Cause I, I love those relationships and man, I, I hate to see that not be part of the game anymore. And, yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the the idea of the uh, or this what looks like it's coming down the road is the is the robot umpires, and I am so against that. Ted, it, the, the only reason I would possibly agree with it is so we could get rid of this stealing strikes crap because I think it's completely ruining the catching position, and it's especially trickling down to Colleges, high schools, and even below that, the youth levels, where we're teaching these kids to catch on one knee, where they can't block the ball, they don't have mobility. This whole idea of stealing strikes, and I I can't stand that. It's like the concept is is you do realize that you're basically telling the umpires you're trying to fool them, you're trying to make them look bad by a pitch that's a ball, but because you can snatch it up six inches, it looks like a strike, and you think the umpires look at your glove they're already determined they've already determined what they're going to call a ball or strike before you even catch it. So I don't this stealing strikes concept baffles me.
0: Yeah, you know Jeff, this is this is one I really don't understand. What are your and thoughts I, on
1: the stealing of strikes?
0: Yeah, th- this is one that I really have trouble understanding why they they teach what they do and it's even happened at the pro level and the major league level. So so think about this. When I first came in When a pitch came in, if the catcher yanked it at all, you just called it a ball, whether it was a strike or not. Because when the catcher says it's a pitch outside and he jerks it back in to the plate area, what's he telling you? He's telling you that he thought it was a ball and he needed to move it to make it look like a strike. So, you know, even if he said, you know, where's that pitch? Well, apparently you thought it was outside because you jerked it. And right. then, you know, in sitting in the dugout as you as a player, you couldn't really tell inside and out, but you could tell up and down. And you could tell when a when a catcher was taking a a ball and trying to jerk it up into the zone. And, you know, you'd yell from the dugout, "Hey, don't let him do that. Don't let him do that." So, you know, if if a, if a catcher was jerking the ball up or taking a high pitch and and pulling it down, you know, you would just ball it because you assumed it was a ball the way he caught it. And then it evolved into this. And, and there was some, you think about a, a little bit before us, but Bob Boone, I mean, one of the great receivers of all time, he he maybe got some pitches that were balls called strikes by the way he caught it. Um, you know, uh, Charlie O'Brien or some of these guys that were very skilled at receiving the ball. Um, and I think about uh, Yachty was very good because he had soft hands, but very stiff, uh, strong wrists and forearms. South of Sano, uh, guys that could take low pitches and and make them look like they they crossed at the bottom of the knee. So there is an art to it, but what they're teaching is not it. And so if you think about this, like you said, on the knee is a terrible look for an umpire. But also, um, when they start yanking the ball from the bottom of the zone and trying to bring it up into the zone. Um, We were just calling it a ball because, like I said, um, just catch it or I'm not going to call it a strike. Well, now we had a grading system come in and the the computerized zone, and and every day we get the results the next day of the pitches, whether we call it a ball or strike, and we have a score and an average. So eventually we started – balling these pitches that the catchers were butchering and we were getting marked down for them. So as umpires, we said, okay, well, we got to start calling them because we want to get good grades um, on our evaluations. So basically what it turned into is we were just completely ignoring what the catcher was doing. We were just trying to call the pitch based on where it crossed, crossed the plate. Forget whether the guy made it look good, whether he framed it, whether he you know caught it well. I mean, when you played, if a catcher dropped a pitch, even if it was a strike, you'd call it a ball. Every time. Every time. <laughs> now you have to call that. Or even the ones that go back to the backstop. I mean, you have to call it – you would never call that a strike in your day. If I, if I call that a strike where the catcher butchered it or dragged it to the ground, um, I think about names. Um, and I hate to do this because he's such a fantastic guy, but like Charles Johnson, who's a great – Great player, great hitter in the Hall of Fame, I think. Charles was not the best at receiving, like, the low pitch.
1: No, he was like a butcher back there, we used to call him. He could throw you out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you tried to bunt on him or you you tried to steal, it wasn't happening, but he just was not a good receiver. Um, And so he took a lot of pitches that uh, were strikes that probably became balls just based on the fact that, you know, his gloves on the ground – um Kurt Mm -hmm. Manwaring was another one that um great guy uh just not the best receiver and you know you got the the dugouts yelling at you because you can't call that pitch um now like I said you just ignore you don't even have to be a good catcher and when the if when the machine comes in and they are calling balls and strikes you can put a first baseman back there because all he's got to do is knock it down right um yeah I I just don't understand why they're why they're teaching this because You're not fooling the umpire. Nobody's fooling the umpire. What the umpire is doing is he's trying to make his best decision on whether the pitch was a ball or a strike, and you're just making it a lot harder. Um, You're making him guess at a low pitch because you're jerking the glove. And so let's just say that one night I'm behind the plate and you get me to call three or four pitches by jerking the glove and then you can all, you know, high five each other and say, look, we got the umpire to call four ball strikes based on what we're doing. Well, I'm the next day I'm going to look and I'm going to see that those pitches. In fact, were not, uh, strikes. They were balls. I'm going to adjust. And then the next time I have you, I'm going to go the other way and I'm going to start calling pitches that maybe are strikes that you're, pulling and I'm going to ball him. You know, I even see catchers that drives me crazy. There'll be a swing and a miss and he'll jerk the ball back into the zone. It's like, what are you doing? I'm not making a decision on that pitch. It's a strike. It's a swinging strike. And I don't understand. And then I I see a video and they're, they're teaching young kids this. And uh, it just, it boggles my mind. And and someone needs, and hopefully there's people out there listening you're not doing yourself any good, and you're not—you're not fooling the umpire. You're just making it harder on him to determine whether it was a ball or a strike. Now, at the lower levels where they don't get graded, um, you know, maybe, maybe they can steal a couple pitches here or there. But how many pitches are they taking away?
1: Yeah, but they're just not teaching these kids, the young kids especially, just the basic fundamentals of receiving the ball and blocking the ball. And I know as – I'm going to ask you about this. As an umpire, you know going into the game if the guy who's catching, the guys who are catching for each team, if they're good at blocking balls, if this – because when, those, when they miss those balls, a lot of time they hit you guys. Oh. And so this guy is just a butcher back there. You know you might be in for a long night and have four or five bruises on your on your body. Because this guy can't block a ball. And now I see with the one-knee stuff, they're not even trying to block the ball. They're picking it. It seems to me like being an umpire has gotten a lot more dangerous than it used to be when the catchers were being taught to block the ball. You call a pitch, you tell a guy to bounce it, your job is to block it 100 times out of 100. Not pick it.
0: No, you think about guys like uh, the older catchers, uh, Mike McFarlane or somebody they took personal pride in the fact that they are not going to let a ball touch you. It doesn't yep. matter if there's nobody on I'm, that, this ball in the dirt will not touch you. I've got you, you know? And when, when a ball did get by and it happened to, you know, hit your shin guard or something, they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I tried to get it. It's like, it's okay, man. I got a shin guard on it. It's okay. It right. not hurt. Uh, now these guys, they don't even try. If there's nobody on, why bother try to block it? Because and so it's, you know, we're getting drilled and it's not even a sorry or, Hey, you okay. Um, and it's like, who, who's coaching these guys? Who's, who's teaching them? Um, you know, in spring training, I'll see a young catcher and, and I'll try to be nice and, and give him some advice and say, Hey, you know, when you're moving your glove way too much. And they'll say, well, I have to do that. This is what my coach is telling me. And I'm like, okay, well, you listen to your coach because he's, that's how you're going to make the team. But I'm just telling you from, from my vantage point and then if i get a veteran catcher um i'll just someone that i know is not in danger of not making the team it's like who who's telling you to do that because you've been a good catcher for years and now you're trying to change what you're doing and i know it's somebody in the dugout thinking they know a better way to catch and and they just they don't um because yeah. they probably never did it uh you look at the catchers in the big leagues and then the a lot, of, uh, a lot of them are managers now because, you know, they ran the game and, and they could do that. And so I've had these conversations with the managers, um, and, uh, and they get it. But, um, you know, like everything else in the game, I guess it moves on. And uh, I, you, you brought up the automatic strike zone system. It's, it's funny because uh, our zones have changed so much as you know, um you really it's kind of turned into a, a video game like a computer instead of the guys you mentioned before who were good at running a ball game, controlling a ball game. Um now it's how good can you score a game? And it's kind of taken some of the intangibles of umpiring out of it. Replay on the bases Uh, The way we made our bones coming up as young umpires is how can we handle our arguments and our confrontations that inevitably come up during the game? Well, now there's the only arguments and confrontations are from balls and strikes. And usually it's because the players are running back and looking at um, the information that they're seeing, which is different than the information that you're seeing on TV with the box, which is different than the evaluation we're getting the next day. So it makes it extremely difficult for guys trying to umpire right now uh, to handle those situations.
1: Yeah, that the whole box thing, I don't know when they started that, I guess the K zone or whatever it's called, um, you know, on the TV screen. And it's amazing to me to watch how good Major League umpires are because there's balls that I see that look like they're a fraction of an inch inside outside high and low and they called a ball it's like that was a strike when i played i promise you if you were a ball off the black it was a strike and if you're facing greg maddox or tom glavin you might two or three four balls if javi set up right or perez set up right and so it seems to me that the strike zone is a lot smaller than it was during my playing career and it doesn't really matter who's on the mound. Like when I play, when I was playing, if Greg Maddux is on the mound or Glavin, you knew you had to be ready to to expand uh, the zone to the outside because he could keep throwing it there all day long. And if you don't make an adjustment, you're just going to go back to the dugout. So you had to expand the zone. And that's what Al Clark told me one time. We are in Yankee Stadium facing David Cohn. And a couple pitches that I thought were balls – that they called strikes and went out to, I think Al was at uh, second base. And I went out in the field after the inning, kind of pissed off. And Al came up to me, he says, Start doing your homework and find out who's umpiring behind the plate before you come into the game. He goes, Because each umpire has a different strike zone. He goes, And you got to know what that umpire strike zone is for that day. Yeah. You know, man, I appreciate him saying that to me um, because yeah. I, you know i i was pissed when i got called on a pitch that i thought was not a strike but i also respected the fact that greg Maddox has been doing this for a lot longer than i have so is david Cohn. so is tom glavin these guys earn the right to get those pitches called because they consistently throw them in the same location and they're kind of rewarded and they put in the time and they have the service time and they've earned it they put you know they've put in the work and i'm just the greenhorn just getting here
0: well, that's the thing too, Jeff, is that, you know, a guy like Maddox, he would come out and he was great to work because he would throw, he'd throw a pitch on the corner. He'd call it a strike. He'd go off the plate an inch or two and you'd call it a strike. Then he'd go off three or four inches, you know, and you call it a ball. He would come back to the spot, the farthest spot that you gave him the strike. And then he would just live there all day. Yep. And, um, you know, consistently throw it there and throw it for strikes Um, But the other thing that if you're, if you're giving Maddox that pitches two inches off the corner, I'm going to give that to the guy on the other side of the the other dugout too. And I know with hitters uh, and catchers, they would, Hey, you're giving that to our guy too. So not going to complain. Um, You know, or catcher would say you call a strike on him. He's like, Hey, just give me the same pitch. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's what the difference with when you played was, man. That's outside. You know, you might be talking the dugout, but the catcher goes, "Yeah, you know what though? He's giving that to us too." Okay, I can live with that. You know, that's yep. fine. And it's funny because I was working a game of, uh, last year or two, uh, two thousand twenty-one, and um, one of the pitchers. I'm drawing a blank now. Who it was? Uh, uh, might have been. Uh, Miley or but anyway he had a no-hitter going and he ended up getting a no-hitter. But now it's the 7th inning and his his team is batting and the the batters are complaining. In your day, you know the 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 pitcher with the no-hitter would have been going, "Hey, sit down and be quiet." Shut well, up.
1: Don't,
0: don't yeah, yell at him yeah. for calling strikes. That's what we need at this point. You know, it's 6 to nothing and I got a no-hitter going.
1: Yeah, and he's given me those pitches, so shut he's, up.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the more you, you, you keep yelling at him, he might reconsider calling that and start calling it a ball and calling a ball for me too. But, you know, you've got guys that are concerned about their stats. Uh, another, You know, it would be 10, 11 to nothing, bottom of the eighth. It'd be, I remember doing blowout games where even the team getting blown out. Like, hey, come on, Ted, let's go. Let's get out of here. Let's call some strikes, you know. Right. And, but now it's – we don't want to – we can't afford to go off the plate and mess up our score. And, you know, and the hitter, he's, he's down 11, nothing. And he's trying to draw a walk, um, you know, and because he's worried about his statistics because, and listen, I, I get it. This is economics too. A walk to him might be worth some money, but it just is so different than uh, from when you played, And it's, it's hard to watch the, the evolution of that because that's the biggest uh, criticism I have is that it's become so individual uh, that it's, you know, it's it's nine nine, ten guys coming up to bat worried about their statistics rather than whether their team's winning on the scoreboard or not. And that's frustrating.
1: Uh, it, it frustrates me to no end to see a guy hit a home run when they're losing eight to nothing and then – flip his bat, and take 20 seconds to run around the bases and pound his chest. Like Everybody look at me is like, how about everybody look at the scoreboard? Because now you're losing 8-1. to one. And that home run you just hit when the season's over and you go to arbitration might have some importance. But to this particular game, it means nothing. And all these little kids that want to grow up to be you someday just watched you act like a jackass pounding your chest letting everybody in the stadium know that the most important thing is what you do and not how your team is doing that day. And that is frustrating to former players that grew up in a time when that stuff was not tolerated. That's the kind of stuff like you mentioned earlier, where a veteran player would pull a young kid aside and say, listen, you're going to get one of your teammates hurt acting that way. Don't do it again. And they would listen. And I'm not sure that happens much anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And that, you know, I remember in two thousand and nine, I believe I was working the WBC in Mexico City, and the Cuban team. Uh, Chapman was on that team, and there's several guys that, that came over to play in the big Elvis Andrus and some of the other ones, or um, maybe Leonis Martinez. Um, yes, think was there, I think. Yes, 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 Espedis, and. Um, you know they were they they would hit a home run and and uh, you know it's the second inning and they act like it was a walk off and they're all flooding out of the dugout and we're we're like you know what's going on how do we handle this so we just started yelling and screaming and t- because my fear was someone was going to get killed out there uh, that they would start throwing throwing baseballs at people or brawling or something and you know now it's become almost commonplace in the big league, something I, I never thought would happen. And it, it became, you know, it was good for the game. If you look at the excitement and, and the way the players would, uh you know, be demonstrative and it was fun and, you know, young people like that. But, you know, to, to the older generation, that, that was offensive. Um That's not the way we act. And um, then next thing you know, during the season, you know, you've got people to take offense to that and then they're going to throw at the next hitter. Well, now that puts the umpire in a bad spot because, um, you know, maybe I believe this guy should have been thrown at, but you know, my job now is to, it's like a cop, you know, he says my job is to enforce the law. I don't make the laws. So we've gotten put in positions sometimes where, Hey, this guy really deserved to get thrown at. I mean, and done the right way no one gets to, deserves to have a, a, a fastball thrown at their head but I mean drill them in the rear or, you know do it the right way um but then we have to step up and discipline or issue warnings or reject and there's been times where I've had to eject a pitcher and, and I'm thinking to myself I don't blame me um so we never really were able to get clear on you know what what should be acceptable because you can't penalize the guy that's that's doing the showboating, I guess you could throw them out of the game. But then we become the killjoys, right? So it, it was really putting in a rock in a hard place. I think, uh, I think people liked the demonstrative actions. And so they're like, well, let's, let's let this play out. But, you know, you don't think about the, the trickle-down effect like you say. You, you, we could go uh, to a little league field and you watch kids just <laughs> whipping a bat in the air after hitting a – hitting a home run. I mean, that's dangerous. It's going to land on someone's head somewhere. Um, or, you know, the, 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 uh, thumping the chest and standing there instead of running around the bases, uh, because they, they watch it on TV. So they're going to mimic that. But, um, what they don't know is that's, that's unacceptable behavior to, to some of the older generation. And yeah, it's not, it's, uh, I don't know. Um, you hope that, yeah, it's fun to watch them do it, but we got to have good sportsmanship too and not, not start a war out here.
1: Yeah, I, I I always thought it was a bad decision. I know it wasn't the umpire's decision um, when they kind of took the power away from the players to police the game and, and where, you know, we knew as players if something happened the day before um, that – we considered to be out of line, maybe somebody pimping a homer, uh, maybe somebody, you know, stealing a base when it's a blowout game. Those type of deals. We knew that something was going to happen the next day, and we took care of it. And most of the times in the first inning, and then we're even. And now let's play ball. And when they took the, you know, started issuing the warnings and stuff before the games even started. Man, I just think that was bad for the game, and I know it wasn't fair to you guys to have to do that. I know you didn't want to go out there before the game even started and warn both benches um, that if anybody gets thrown even close to, somebody's getting ejected. And now now you got Pedro Martinez on the mound who lives inside, and part of his game is intimidation and keeping you off the plate, and it takes away part of his – his game plan, his repertoire, and I—I I just hated when Major League Baseball did that.
0: Well, yeah, and it made it hard for us, like you said, because you really have to be a mind reader. All right, did Pedro mean to throw up and in at this guy and hit him, or did it just get away from him? And you know, I've got to read his mind, and, and I really I can't do that. Only he knows if it was intentional or not. And so, um, yeah, you, you didn't want to handcuff a guy by by coming out and issuing a warning. But I will say. Uh, the older pitchers knew how to do it right, too, like I said, drill them in the backside, hit you in the thigh um instead of going up at your head and I think there there was a mutual respect there, like i'm not trying to put you in the hospital I'm just trying to send a message <laughs> that this isn't acceptable and um you know uh I, I can remember he talked about Chuck Merriweather earlier what a what a great guy, but he he was working the plate and uh Maddox came up to bat. I was on the bases. He told us about the exchange after, but he said that um, Maddox had hit somebody and didn't mean it. Well, he was leading off the next inning, and he said he said to Chuck, he said, if, if this guy drills me, he said, I'm going to go to first. Don't do nothing. And uh, Chuck told him, well, if I don't do anything, uh, you probably won't see me out here tomorrow because I'll probably get fired. So, um, I mean, but guys got that. I remember Biggio coming up to bat. Once um uh, fully expecting to wear one, he looked down at the catcher, I think might have been Osmus, and he said, he said, just don't, just don't go at the head. And um uh, he didn't. He got drilled in the butt and 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 he put the bat down, he ran to first. And um yep. and and that's the way the game was played. And you know, I I hate to sound like a dinosaur and say, you know, gosh, when I played it was it was so different, or you know, when I broke in, it was so different. But one of the cool things about being an umpire or a player that then becomes a coach, you know, you can look back at over your career at, at how much things have changed. And, um, you know, it's just uh, – I'm, I'm anxious to see how this is going to work out this year with, with them banning the shift and, you know, the clock and, and, and the game getting uh, – uh, trying to move along faster. And so I'm curious. We'll wait and see how that, how that all plays out.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm interested to see how the pitch clock deal works out because, oh man, I'm just. I, I I'm thinking about guys like that have been in the league for ten or fifteen years, like Clayton Kershaw or Max Scherzer. That you know, when the game is on the line in a tough situation, they might take a little bit more time um, to make a big pitch in a big situation, and I could just see Clayton doing that slow, deliberate arms over his head thing when he does when he goes to his set position and all of a sudden somebody go, Time, that's a balk. Yeah. <laughs> you're moving up the third, you're coming in to score. And everybody's gonna go, Oh my God, what just happened? Is this really yeah. major league baseball? And then probably with the arguing, um,
0: it'll it'll prolong the game instead of making it quicker. But you know, th- there are things they can do to quicken the pace of it. Um, you know, the pace had gotten slow over the last twenty years as well, where um, you know, you guys played a little crisper and, um, you know, when, when it was your turn to bat, you came up to the plate. Now they like to take their time with walk-up music and, but you know what, it's still, it, it, it's still the best game in the world. Um, and, and none of us like long games, right? We like, we like a, a good, crisp, clean ball game, but, um, you know, how, how we hurry that up, that's, that's going to be interesting to see.
1: Yeah. Um. I want to ask you about the, uh, the K zone that we see on television Um, because it looks to me like it's the same strike zone for every player. And, you know, I was always told that, you know, us littler guys, you know, we were, had an advantage because we had a smaller strike zone. Um, And, you know, we, you know, it was working against us already because we were smaller. We weren't as powerful, so we got a smaller strike zone. Um, but I see – when I see Aaron Judge come up there and I see the, the K zone on the TV and then I see Jose Altuve come up there and same exact strike zone on TV, I mean, do they have the same strike zone?
0: <laughs> no, no, they, they don't. And you're right. And a lot of times, you know, when the K-Zone first came on, they used to say this is for recreational purposes only. Don't use it to judge the umpire. Um, and some of the networks are different. Some of them will take, like, the average height of a player, and they'll, they'll kind of move it up and down. But here's the problem with, uh, you know, the the automated strike zone. It's hard to, in real time, adjust the height. Um, you know, the width is static. You know, you, could, you can make the width of the plate uh, whatever you want, but – the height, it changes not just hitter to hitter, but I don't know about you, but maybe in your stance, you know, sometimes the two strikes, I don't know, you shorten up, choke up, maybe get down a little bit more. Um, you make an adjustment maybe on a uh, at-bat to at-bat, you know, like I'm going to sit up higher this time. So, you know, you might be changing your zone pitch to pitch. And, and as the umpire, that's where we're setting, setting our zone based on where your stance is but the TV box is trying to take a a three-dimensional zone and make it two dimensional. And it just can't be done. Um, now they can get it pretty close, but pretty close isn't, isn't what players are looking for at the major league level. They're looking for exact. And so, you know, it's interesting with, uh, last year, Pat Hoberg, great young umpire, worked his first world series. And according to the third party grading systems that, that, uh, they take the raw data and then they adjust it and ump auditor and some of these other sites according to those those sites pat did not miss a pitch he worked the first game i think in major league history according to them where an umpire didn't miss a pitch but according to the k zone i think there was like seven balls that that were disagreed with um based on the that box and then then there's a different scoring system that that we're you – a lot of it has to do with mathematics and margins of errors and and tracking and things like that. But basically uh, there's different systems that we're getting evaluated on. And the least accurate is the box on the TV. Um, So it's frustrating for for an umpire because the player, you'll call a pitch – say you call a strike on a hitter, he runs back to the dugout, goes to the video room, and he comes back and he says that was outside – well, you don't know you we're the only ones that don't have uh, equipment to go look at to see whether it's a ball or a strike. So we wait until the next day when we get our evaluations and then we're like, no, that wasn't outside. I was right. Um, but sometimes there's, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the hitter was right. That was outside. Um, or, you know, the catcher was right. That was on the plate, but the, uh, the hitters are getting looking at different information than what we're looking at. And so imagine having a job where uh, people are evaluating you on a different scale from what your employers are evaluating you on and what you evaluate yourself on. It's just, it's maddening. And then you've got these third-party sites that they have a different way of grading you. And then they're critical of you saying, well, this guy's terrible. He missed 20 pitches. But then I open up my evaluation, and I've only missed three. I mean, there's a, there's a big difference there. When you're talking about whether a pitch is a ball or a strike, an inch, an inch and a half, that's, that's, a, that's a big difference uh, when you're trying to track and grade. So
1: I don't know if any of that made sense, but uh, oh, yes. that,
0: that's the frustration that umpires have.
1: Yeah, and here's the thing that I think a lot of people are missing in this whole deal. Uh, and I see when umpires supposedly have bad games – it's all over social media. Um, you know this guy was horrible tonight. He cost us the game. It's like, you know, how hard it is to, to call a pitch ninety-five miles an hour, um, whether or not it misses by half an inch or not. It's like <laughs> that's that's the part of the th- that I think is being missed is that you guys are people, man. You're human beings. You're not perfect. You're not a robot. You make mistakes. You don't do it on purpose. You Just sometimes you see a ball, maybe an inch inside instead of an inch outside, and you call it a strike, and not and instead of a ball, and they, and now you're just ridiculed and you are get blasted all over social media. I mean, you guys got to have some thick skin, man, to be to have the job you do.
0: Well, you just you stay off social media and you, you tell your family not to read it and uh, just ignore it. But you know, another thing is. Um, when you when you played, if you came up to bat and say I called strike one, and you thought the pitch was way outside, you're like Ted, that, come on, that's outside. But you know what? It's 0-1, and now you're back in the box and you're ready to go, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I call strike three on you, and you think it's a ball, yeah, you're going to be angry. You're going to be you're going to be not so nice with me. Uh, you're going to be a little more frustrated. My point is, there was a big difference between. A strike one and a strike three. Um, not that I was expanding the zone on strike one, but um, your reaction. Now, if, if I call a strike one on a player, um, he's ready to be ejected. And that's the thing I never uh, really got over because I'm like, it's strike one. Get back in the box. Okay. Maybe I missed it. I'm going to try not to miss another one.
1: Uh-huh. Uh,
0: but it's 0 and 1. And, you know, they start quoting statistics. Well, 0 and 1 now I have a, a 62% chance of getting on base or whatever it is. It's like, where do you even get that from? Um, they actually I, say that to you? Yeah, I, I had a player, and he's still playing. Uh, he, I called a 2-0 pitch on him, and then the next day he's playing third base, and he's like, you know, you took this statist- whatever statistic it was, you knocked my statistical chance of getting on base to this, and I'm like, Sorry, man. I'm just trying. I'm just back there trying to get my pitches right. I'm not even worried about that.
1: All but- no, your fault, Ted. It's all you, you should have said. It. That's all right. <laughs> if you're worried about stuff like that, you won't be around here long anyway, son. Just enjoy the time you have. That's what I'd say. <laughs> and- I got to tell you, tell you a, a funny story. I have so many great stories, but I know we don't have a lot of time. But playing for the Red Sox, uh, Jim McKeon is umpiring. And we're facing the Angels. Sean Bosky's pitching, mm-hmm. and you know he wasn't an overpowering guy, but you know he had good command and kind of a, you know I heard people call him a poor man's uh, Greg Maddox. So he called, he throws a pitch outside, probably a ball or two outside. I thought, and he called it a strike. And then next pitch, he threw one, probably a ball off the plate inside, and he called that a strike. And I turned around to Jim. It's a day I'll never forget this." So I turned around, to Jim. I said, "Jim, I said you can't freaking give him inside and outside. He ain't Cy so Young." And he goes, "You ain't Babe Ruth either." And I said, "All right, man, good one." <laughs> I turned around, <laughs> and I got a hit with two strikes. <laughs> I about it, but I was like, "Oh man, that Dream was a team. that was a good one. that was good." <laughs> and Jim Rice, and Jim Rice uh, was our hitting coach, and every time. Um, Jim McKeon was behind the plate after that. With the next couple of years, uh, it's like Rice, look who's umpiring behind the plate. He goes, "Hey, Jim, got Babe Ruth down here." <laughs> Jim, Jim was very quick witted,
0: man. He could come up with stuff right off the top of his head like that. And and yeah, oh, uh, yeah,
1: that that was funny.
0: But you know, and then and then you you uh you appreciated that, right? You accepted it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and when I was in Tulsa in Double A, this. You know, young umpire trying to cut his teeth is, uh, you know, working his way up, and he calls a terrible pitch on me. I mean, low, but almost hit the dirt, and he called a strike. And I turned around and I said, "What is that?" I said, like, "That's not even close to being a strike." And, and he had his ma- still had his mask on, and he's cussing himself out. He goes, "Damn it! What am I doing? What am I doing?" And I turned around, and I was like. Oh, you're all right, dude. Don't be so hard on yourself. Let's go. <laughs> I just want to let you know, I knew that wasn't a strike, but I didn't expect you to be so hard on yourself and beat yourself up. We'll be all right. Let's move on. <laughs> I know there's, there's, there's
0: times that I was, you know, uh, you're standing there and people are yelling. It's like, all right, Hey, come on, get your, get, get your head in the game. Let's go. <laughs> Let's get it right. But uh yeah. You know, th- that's the great thing too, is the interactions. You know, you remember that, you remember that interaction with, with uh, Jim McKean And I remember having interactions with players. I remember Chili Davis. Uh, the first time I had him, it was angels, Randy Johnson's pitching for the Mariners. And I call strike three on him on a, just a tough pitch, you know, bottom of the knees on the corner. He said, can you hit that? And I said, man, Chili, if I could hit that, I wouldn't be standing back here. I'd be standing in the box where you are. <laughs> and every time I saw Chili after that, he would laugh and, and uh, uh, I remember uh, David Cohn, uh, Rich Garcia, I'm working with him. And he said, hey, stay with this guy, man. This guy, he's got a nasty uh, backdoor breaking slider. He said, you're going to think it's outside and it breaks over. And I'm like thinking to myself, all right, Richie, you know, I've, I have umpired before. and the guys in AAA have good stuff and get out there in the first pitch. First time he throws that slider and it snaps over and I had already called it a ball. And, uh, McFarlane's catching, he goes, Hey, it's the first time you had him, huh kid. And, uh, it's like, I'm looking at Richie and he's just shaking his head at me. Like I told you, but you know, those type of interactions. And then every time I saw McFarlane after that, he's like, Hey, you got it now. And, um, you know, little, little inside jokes from conversations like that and the banter like that. Yeah. That's, that's the stuff I'll miss. And, um, and the funny stories.
1: Yeah. I have, uh, I was playing for the Red Sox. We're playing in the Metrodome, and it's a blowout game. And I understand, you know, like you mentioned earlier, the blowout games, you know, the strike zone's probably going to get a little bit bigger, and maybe the close plays. You know, we're trying to get out of there. And uh, so it was, uh, I think we were winning by seven or eight runs. And I hit an infield chopper on that turf in the Metrodome, and I beat it out by at least a half a step, if not a step. And Jim Joyce called me out and I was, you know, I argued for a little bit, but I realized I, I couldn't make a scene because it looks like I'm a selfish player right. by arguing over infield hit in a blowout game. So I came out to the field after and Jim goes, Hey, I missed that one. He goes, I owe you one. I said, okay, Jim, thank you. And so my next at bat, um, a couple innings later, um, it's a check swing and he's at first base and they appealed and I didn't think I went. And I looked down at Jim. I said, Jim, did he go? And he goes, ha, like that. And I was like, and I just stuck both arms up in the air. I said, I thought you owed me one.
0: <laughs>
1: now he <laughs> so, owes you two. Hey, he still owes me one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to tell Jim that when I talk to him.
1: Heck yeah, he <laughs> owes me one. But uh, uh, my producer, uh, Dave D'Agostino, would like to uh, jump in and Usually he does this at some point to try and ruin the show. But uh, what you got for us, David? I promised you before. I already forewarned you. That's my <laughs> you one did. time of the show. I think the, the umpire that owes you one, he's got to get on the show. That'll be his. Is the one he owes you. We'll no bring time. him on. No but uh, not, Ted, I think you, I mean your messages to young catchers are phenomenal. Uh, I've, I'm raising a young catcher right now myself, and the messages you, you sent today are exactly the same things that I'm impressing upon him. So I think that's fantastic to our audience. I appreciate you doing that. Um, and obviously, you, you have. we can tell why you've had great relationships throughout your career. I mean, you're, you're very, very good with people, very good at your job. Um, I wanted to ask you this is more of a personal question. You umpired for a long time. You traveled just like ballplayers do. It's a lot of time away from home and family who are some people in your life that made sacrifices for you in order to be so good at what you did for such a long time?
0: Yeah, David, I appreciate that. Because if you think about it, the players play half their games at home or at least, you know, where they're living for that season. So for us, when we hit the road, uh, we're gone. And um, unless, you know, like I got to come back and do the Diamondback games a couple times a year. So that would be, you know, where I could sleep in my own bed, but um, so yeah, it is. It is a lot of sacrifice, and it it is. Um, but you know, when I first came to the big leagues, the crew chiefs uh, that uh, you know Jeff mentioned some of them earlier, the Rich Garcia, Jim McKean, uh, Al Clark, um, Drew Koble, uh, Tim McClellan, who I worked with a long time, Tim Cheetah, uh, Rick Reed. These are the guys that would would talk to me not just about how to be a big league umpire, but how to uh, be a dad, be a husband. Um, And so I'm forever grateful to them who, you know, they, they would warn me don't do this because I've done that or do this. And this has worked well for me as a, as a man, not just as a, um, as an umpire. Um, So for them, that's what I try to do too. I I try to pour into the younger guys with that. Uh, Of course, my parents, the way they, they sacrificed for me, and they were always my biggest fans and you know, I'm lucky to still have them because I think they're, they were probably the most disappointed when I retired because <laughs> I think they enjoyed watching me work the games, but they've, they've got other friends now and they'll, they'll continue to watch, watch them work. But um, yeah, coaches, Jeff and I were talking earlier about playing football, Cal state Hayward, man. my college coaches, my position coaches, my uh, stay in touch with the ones that are fortunate to still be alive because they were the biggest influences on me, uh, you know, playing sports and trying to be excellent. And, um, you know, my boxing trainers, uh, that would push me to say, Hey, you know what? Um, I know you're tired. I know you're hurting. I know you want to give up, but get back out there and fight another round and learning life lessons. Um, I've had, uh, you know, the great pastors and teachers that I'm just so grateful for that took the time to pour into me. And and a lot of them, you know, I'm getting old now. So a lot of them are gone. Uh, you know, my grandpa, uh, both my grand grandfathers the way they poured into me. So, you know, the biggest thing I, I'd love to pass along to people listening is that you take the time to, to pour into a younger person. Um, and, and it's, it's a different, different uh, than from when we came up, I'm 57 years old. So, but I think about talking to high school kids, now, talking to college kids, it, this world is so different, but it's still the same. If you can encourage them, and you can uh, you know, really listen to them, talk to them, then benefit from your experience. I love, David, that you were talking earlier about working with your son and, and giving him advice because that's, that's what a great dad does. And now that I'm a grandpa, I can pass along some of this wisdom, but mostly try to uh, help them out, not make the mistakes that I did. Long answer to your short question. <laughs>
1: Beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was uh, well. I can see Ted. You know why uh, everybody talks about you the way that uh, that they do. You just seem like a great dude, man. And and, uh, congratulations to you on on a great career as a major league umpire. Um, You're going to go down as one of the best ever in my mind. And uh I know that uh I'm not the only one that feels that way. But I think maybe even the coolest part is that you're a better person than you are an umpire or were an umpire. And that's more important than anything. And that's what I'm trying to do with my Shigon stuff is I'm trying to go uh, this weekend I go to Connecticut, next weekend I go to Kentucky and talking about not just baseball and my story but Character development, leadership, and how we can—we have to put the time in with these kids and teach them the things that we were all taught automatically by our parents. That I think is being missed in a lot of a lot of um, families these days. Is we got to teach these kids the right and the wrong way to do things. Teach them to be respectful, to hold the doors open for ladies, to do something nice for somebody. And I think our world will be a better place if everybody can do a little bit more of that.
0: Man, Jeff, I love what you're doing. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot of people out there doing stuff just for trying to make a buck and they're taking advantage of people. And that's not why you're doing it. You're trying to, you're trying to teach people the right way. And, you know, I was, I was talking to a younger person uh, yesterday, and I think this is a perfect analogy of of like you and I, when you, we knew how to disagree. You knew how to disagree with umpires, but do it respectfully. I feel like I knew how to argue with a player, but still give him his dignity and respect, listen to him, disagree with him. That's a lost art right now. And we've got to teach young people to do that. We have to teach young people to have difference of opinions, different beliefs, different backgrounds, and yet, still get along. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to have a, a little argument. But at the end of the day, respecting each other and giving each other dignity. And um, and you're absolutely right. If we can, if, if we can pass that along, it doesn't matter how much when we leave how much money we have or or you know whatever stuff we have. That you can't take that with you, right? But what does matter is what we can leave behind. And that's and and I appreciate you so much talking about my reputation because. I don't. I could care less if someone said that I was a great umpire. I hope they said I was at least. You know, I cared about the job. But if they said I was a good person, then that's um, that's that's worth more than than any gold you can have.
1: I couldn't agree more, buddy. I couldn't agree more. I'm going to keep doing my thing on social media and uh, you know trying to help kids. And uh, one of I wanted to mention real quick before we go is uh, I met a family. On social media, through social media, probably a year or two ago, and it was dad whose daughter is an uh, aspiring baseball player. She actually plays baseball in high school. Her name is Lillian Martineau, and I got to meet Lillian last year at the Rangers game. Um, she was in town doing uh, an all-girls baseball deal that Major League Baseball set up, and so on Friday, I'm flying up to Connecticut, and on Saturday... Her dad is coming to pick me up, take me to lunch, and I'm going to go watch Lillian, who's a junior in high school, uh, play a basketball game. Just because I like her and her like her family, and I want to, uh, you know, try and help her in um, any possible way I can. And Dave um, is helping her with our uh, uh, one-on-one, your shot-on-one, trying to help her get a baseball scholarship. But it's all about doing nice things for people and going out of your way. Um, even though you may have nothing personally to gain by it, you know you're doing something nice for somebody and they'll appreciate it down the road and that's enough for me.
0: Man, that is awesome of you, Jeff, and that doesn't surprise me that you're doing that. And you're gonna make that girl's day when you show up at that at that game.
1: Yeah, she already said she can't wait. I can't wait either. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. And so but uh thank you so much for taking the time today and telling us your story and it's a great story and uh Good luck to you uh, in your motorcycle riding. Be careful out there. There's a lot of knuckleheads looking at their phones and driving these days. Um, so you be careful. Hope you get up Sturgis and uh, enjoy retirement. Uh, you, you've definitely earned it, and uh, I do appreciate you coming on the show today.
0: Thank you so much. And then one last thing, Jeff, you know, young people out there, maybe a uh, the way to make some money is doing some umpiring. Uh, maybe when you're, your playing days are over, uh, you want to do some umpiring, um, MLB has some, some umpire camps that they're offering, um, and they can always, if they want to get in touch with you through social media and you want to connect me with them, I'm happy to help anybody who wants to uh, give it a shot.
1: That's great. And, and before I let you go, uh, one of my real good friends, his name is Billy Martin Jr. Mm. Um, you might be able to guess who his dad is, but <laughs> Billy Martin the third. Um, is interested in getting into umpiring school. And Billy asked me when he knew I was going to have you on here to pass along your contact info to him because his son, he goes, can you imagine Billy Martin, the third, a major league umpire, how cool that would be. So I'm going to have to pass you along his information. Cause uh, that's something that he wants to pursue.
0: I will help him any way he can, because wouldn't that be awesome to see his So have have Billy to to, uh, look down and see his grandson in an umpire uniform.
1: Yeah, he said, can you imagine he'd be the first umpire that goes out there and kicks dirt on the manager? (laughs) Oh, wouldn't that be great? I miss that stuff. I love it. I love it. All right, well, I'll pass it along. I appreciate it. Um, Great show. Thank you, David, for everything. This is Jeff Fry signing off on the She Gone podcast. She gone.
0: Take
1: them out of this ball game, throw them out in the crowd. Bring us some true baseball knowledge back. They don't want us to ever come back. Root, root, root for real baseball. Matrix crap is so late. But it's one, two, three hundred dogs who just
0: ruin this game.